0: Awesome. Well, for those who are visiting for, uh, here for the first time, uh, my name is Pat Hegarty. It's, it's uh, great to be here on one of the ministry team. And, and I want to start a conversation with us. Um, really, it's a carry on of a conversation we've been having all year about the whole idea of being called out. And um, I don't know whether you've ever had this experience about being called out. I get called out fairly routinely. Um, apparently, not everything I say is uh, said the right way. So we, t- we do tend to get the Monday morning emails. But. Um, so now and again, we get called out, and you, you may have, your experience might have been you've had an assumption about some issue in your life, you don't even know it's an assumption, you just take it for granted, you don't question it, but you've spoken it out once too often, and someone just decides one day after all those years just to call you out. You ever had the calling out experience? It's like they go, hang on a sec, what you just said there doesn't qualify past the pub test. They're like honestly, that's, that's just not fact. And they, and they challenge you on it, and they give you the counter-argument, and you realise All this time I've been wrong. And it's really embarrassing. Well, this series is not about that at all. So you can relax about that. I'm not calling you out on anything like that. Um, Everyone, just the shoulders went down. That's great. But you may have had this experience where a friend calls you to join them for the weekend. Okay, so this is looking good. A friend joins you for the weekend at the beach or somewhere relaxing. And you get there, you're looking forward to it, it's just you haven't caught up for for too long and you start to have the conversations but you realise after about half an hour there's only so much conversing you can really do. I mean, we're sitting here, what what happens next? Uh, There's only so much talking required. But they suddenly stand up and go, let's go. And you go, let's go where? Well, we're going for a walk or we're going to the beach or we're, we're going to go fishing in a boat or we're going to do something that's not just sitting here chewing the fat. And it wasn't in your head but it suddenly sounds like a great idea. Or maybe it doesn't sound like a great idea, but it wasn't what you were expecting. You thought it was all going to be sitting back, but now it's going to be about sand or sea and sunburn or bait or something smelly. But whatever it is, it's just not what you were expecting. Well, that's what the next few weeks are about. It's not quite what I was expecting, but this sounds good. And this is really a lot about what the Christian life is about. Because often we we buy the ticket and we think, cruise liner. Fantastic, and we head on down to the docks and we were expecting the big white Caribbean cruiser, but we get there and there's a battleship there and we go, where do I put my ticket? This is the wrong ship. We realise pretty quickly that what we've signed up for is more than a pleasure cruise. There's a bit of a battle that we're going to be involved in here and and as as comfortable as it may be on the ship, there's going to be times where we've got to get out in the water and and, and fight. When uh, Jesus called Simon before he was Peter, it was very much like this. And if you follow the story in Matthew 4, 19, he has this revelation that he can't reverse, he can't unsee the reality because Jesus has just said, just uh, cast your nets out on the other side. I know you think you're pretty good at this deal and you're making money out of it, but I'm I'm better. Throw your net out and he catches fish where he would never have caught them before, particularly out in the deep water, which is something we'll investigate next week. But to sum up the story, Peter comes back with eyes like saucers and knees knocking together as he realises I'm in the very presence of the God of the universe who can control where and when the fish are turning up, better than me with my nets. And he sums it up and just puts a cornerstone for his life and says, follow me because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Follow, make, fish. And we realise that this isn't just for Simon Peter, this is a template. When when we understand the reality that, well, despite all my arguments, I I can't come to any other conclusion right now that there there is God and God is bigger than me and it doesn't mean my questions aren't all answered, but I realise this is true. This is real. This is not going away and I can't unsee this. And God's response back to that as we realise one way or the other, I'm all in, even though if I don't know what I'm all in for. And he says, "Relax." I'm gonna make you into a fisher of men. You follow, I make, you become. And so we're not just followers. And this changes things. And I became and remained quite enamored with the whole idea of being a follower of Christ. I talk about it all the time, I preach into it, I do all this stuff. But this whole idea of there's two sides to this coin: I'm a follower and I'm a fisherman. If I'm a follower, I'm a fisherman. And something about the making in the middle of all that ensures that those things happen. But I I can be a follower pretty easily, really, in in this Western culture. It's getting harder now. We get more and more criticised, but but it's nothing compared to what it can become, as we know from history. I can be a follower. I spend time with the Lord. I I read Scripture. I behave myself. I'm not a bad person by comparison. You know, I can be a follower. We can do that. And we think "That's that's not too bad. That's a big step from just being a fan. Fan to follow is a pretty big step, isn't it? I mean Simon Peter that, that moment he'd gone from being a fan he'd been following Jesus around for some weeks or months before that now he's now he's a follower, but the follower must become the fisherman and there's this inescapable assumption on all of us that we need to grapple with in a new way because it hasn't been as confronting as it is uh, now it's been coming for a while, but Christendom is dead, the assumption that every church every every corner should have a church on it, that every government should make way that that the moral grid for our society is the Christian moral grid. Those are, they're gone. That's, that's history now for the time being. So now the assumption is, how do we make this whole thing work now? When society pushes back, where we're not just accepted as being the good people who know how it's all supposed to be. How do we become fruitful now? What does fruit even look like? And how do I become that person who's not just a follower, I'm also fruitful? Does it doesn't mean that we're constrained to being those crazy evangelist people that blow on the bullhorn in the public corner and, and we cringe as we walk past them. Well, I don't think so. Although evangelism in a strictest sense uh, is something that we should all be equipped in, in, in that I know how to explain the gospel of Jesus. If you follow me on Facebook, which I know three and a half people do, you would have seen a, a photo a few weeks back of a, of a guy I hadn't seen him in uh, nearly, uh, 40 years. Uh, nearly 40 years, nearly 40 years, the guy that led me to Christ. He was a guy brave enough to, con- to confront me, to call me out in that sense and to say, here is why Jesus had to come. No one had ever taken the time to explain it to me before. It only took one time. and I thought, you've got to be nuts not to get into this deal. This is the best deal in town. Highest stakes, best deal. Why wouldn't, you would- why wouldn't you do that? Evangelism. It doesn't need to be crazy, but it does need to happen. And we can all have this conscious competence about how to do that. And probably in the last quarter of the year or first quarter next year, again, we're going to run some workshops on how relationally we can do that with our friends and family. So there are times where we all need to do the work of an evangelist. But I'm not talking about that when, it, when it's talking about being a fisher of men. It, it can be part of it. But not all of us are like that, are we? We're not like that. Not all are evangelists, but we're all called to fish. So he's been called called out. It's like he's been summoned in to go out. And this in and out, this back and forth, this ebb and flow of the tide of our life is what this needs to look like. Because if it's all in, if it's all come on Sunday, this is Christianity, the other 167 hours of the week are mine. And I know we don't do that, generally speaking. That's not the mindset in this room. But we need to, well, what is my Christian faith? How do I express it? Where's the fuel for that tank? And what's it look like when I get it right? We're all called to fish and this calling that God's put on your life is not about what you do, it's in the making. Jesus said, follow me, I will make you. The calling is found somewhere in the midst of this making idea and when he makes us, we can't help but become fishers of men. But our calling is not so much what you do. Often we get confused, is it my calling to start this church? Is it my calling to be the pastor here? Well, it's my assignment, but I had a calling long before this and I'll have a calling long, long after this, God willing. There's an assignment. There are many assignments, and there is calling. The calling on Simon was to make him a fisher of men. And the calling upon our life is to do the same thing, albeit different to how it worked out for him. The calling is who he's making you. The calling on your life is who Christ is making you to be. He hasn't made you there yet. You're on the way. There's a trajectory under which you take, and, and for Simon it meant... You're going to become Peter, he said eventually. Simon becomes Peter. The wispy reed, his name meant, becomes a solid rock. And he sort of got there towards the end. It took a long time, but this trajectory that he was on, that's the making, that's the calling, that's the character. And along that journey, you have assignments along the way. And whenever you turn up, you seem to turn up. Have you noticed that? Whatever situation you're in, you seem to keep turning up. You have an open door into some brand new thing, new setting, new relationship, new suburb, new whatever, but you keep turning up. Obviously, because that's your calling, that's who you are. And who you are keeps springing up in the midst of whatever circumstance or assignment that you're on. But he's calling us to be fishers of men or fishers of people, if I can be PC about it. Um, As we do that, there should be a natural result from the making that we become fishers of, how do I say it? What's the best way? People? Fishers of people. T-N-I-V, the new N-I-V, we'll, we'll make it that way. So what does that mean? It means that... You do what you do. Calling is this. You do whatever it is that you do. You do it in a way that honours who you are. So what does it mean to be a disciple? It's who Jesus would be if Jesus were me. So I don't have to go to the cross again. He's done that. That's sorted out. But he needs a pastor that would do pastoring like him. But he needs business people. He needs salesmen. He needs IT people. He needs... All of it, housewives, teachers, all of us. He needs people to be doing that the way he would do that if he was in your shoes. That's the calling. It honours who he's made you to be and who you are becoming. So you're you're Christian, that means you do it in a Christian way. You're gifted, so you do it in the way that he's gifted you to do it. You're unique, so you do it in your unique way. You have specific gills and... Gills. (laughs) The fisher of men, it's just coming out, right? And passions, but you do them in a way that's dedicated to the mission of God. The mission of God is to advance the kingdom as it is in heaven, let it be on earth. So all that we do, however he's made us to be and whatever that trajectory is on, we do it in a way that is dedicated to the mission of God. That's our calling in life, that's who we are. So if we understand call, and I've, that's uh, not new ground for many of us who've he- heard me speak over the years. We understand call, but what does it mean to be called out, like, how do we do that? And it's it's easy for me. I'm that guy. I'm, I'm I'm sort of paid to be good. You know where that ends, hey? Do I need to finish that? It's just it's just hanging out there now. Don't go there. I'm paid to be good. I'm paid to be the Christian guy. I'm expected to evangelize. I get. I get the odd phone calls through the week. Hey, there's this person there in the cafe. They want to come to know Jesus, or they want to know. You know, and so you, of course, who are you going to call? <laughs> I, I'm making this up as I go. You can't tell. It's just so smooth the way it's running. But I'm just making this up. It's just a gift I have. Okay, so being called out is being missional. It's being multiplying. It's fruitful in that. In that if I were to go tomorrow, if I was to pass away tomorrow, the world is different because I've multiplied who I am. I've multiplied what God's made me. And so you have that same sense of calling. Who has God made you to be? Who is he making you to be? If I'm being fruitful, I'm multiplying that. Ephesians 4, uh, if you know the passage 4.11, um, people like myself or leaders or teachers or pastors, their job is to equip the the saints to do the work of ministry. So the impact of someone who is, is doing their role is that Other people are equipped to do it as well. You create a culture of that and it multiplies and out it goes. But together, see, we're all gifted at different things. We have those gifted in mercy and care and teaching, uh, all sorts of things. But the sum total of all our efforts, even if only one in 10 of us is good at evangelism, the sum total is all that missional work gets done. If the body of Christ works as it's designed to be, we're all playing our part, your part, and the fruitful mission happens. The sum total of your life and and, and ours is that it it happens in fruitful mission. And it happens here because this is a missions outpost now. We're not a parish church on the corner where people come because they live in the area and they're supposed to come to church on Sunday. People just don't do that anymore. So we're now a missions outpost. So all you're giving that you're giving is giving to a missional idea. We're here on mission in in a secular society that doesn't get it It's not even post-Christian anymore. It's almost pre-Christian where it's like there's no memory in our culture of someone who's a Christian. We don't know what that means. It's even better than being post-Christian. We don't like church anymore. It's great. So there's us as a missional outpost where people come and they get saved and sanctified and sent. We do all that great stuff. But it's also out there beyond the walls uh, to those who aren't ready for this. This is like black belt Christianity, you know, this is where the hardcore people come on a Sunday. But there's a whole world of people out there who don't even know about uh, God, don't understand why on earth you'd want to spend an hour in church on a Sunday. And so there's a whole mission field out there for that as well. That's where we need to be going. And so there's, there's two sides to this coin. You're sent individually. You're sent to the people you have contact with, family, friends, ho- work, hobbies, and so on. But we are sent together. And this is more the conversation for today, I guess. We are sent. Th- this group of people... And if God looks at us on a Sunday, he he sees one group, all of us together, making up this beautiful thing called the church. And there's nothing like the church when the church gets it right. So in that design, fruitfulness requires all of us to play our part, those of us who call this their home. Perhaps informally, and you don't need a job title, you don't need a job description, you don't even need my permission to be good here, to be helpful here, to connect You're endorsed, just go for it, be nice people, be good to each other, go on mission, we love you, go. You don't need a job description for that. But for others, uh, it's being part of a team um, and doing it more formally. But we all play a part. If this is your church, the assumption is you're playing your part in God's greater mission. So the capacity, I, I, I very much understand, and I'm the church guy, everyone else has to earn an income, pay a mortgage deal with all the complexities of life, I have some too, by the way, but and and you know, so I do get it. And I have, I did spend a number of years in the normal workplace, but but when I prepare a message like this, I'm just so mindful that it's easy for me. I don't think about much else, to be honest, besides God, family, and church. There's not much else going on in my life right now. Maybe I need to address that, but it's it fills my tank. That's about all I need right now. So that's. But you have a lot more things going on. Work paths, career paths, children, children who aren't living the way you'd want them to live, all the stuff that goes with their life. It's incredibly complicated and the demands just don't cease. So I want to talk about what happens in that place because not all of us have the capacity to contribute. For some, it comes easier than other people. And that which fills our minds and our diaries determines how all this is going to play out for us. So let's have a look at what Jesus has to say. And I want to use the parable of the sower which I don't think I've ever really taught into while I've been here, but it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic insight into how we grapple with this in a modern-day culture. Matthew 13, it starts off by saying, uh, he, Jesus, told them many things. So he's, he's speaking to the, to the general populace now, those who are sort of hanging around the fans, not necessarily the followers. He told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. And that's the point that he's getting to here is that sort of first prize, okay? That's, where we're, that's the good stuff. That's where we're going. But he, I love the way he finishes it. Whoever has ears, let them hear. It's like, in other words, not everyone's going to get this. You're going to hear the me, me 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 but you're not going. It's not going to go in there. So he, he who has the capacity to understand, which is very different from hearing, let them understand. And he just puts it out there. Not everyone's going to get this. And I love it. The disciples come straight back to him because he's got a whole string of parables in this in this section of scripture. And he's just telling story after story and he's not really seemed to be getting to any point at all. And the disciples just get a bit jacked at it and say, Jesus, teaching moment here. Let us in on the secret here. Why don't you just make it easy and talk plainly so normal people can have half a clue what you're talking about? What's with the whole seed thing? What's with the leaven of the kingdom? What's with all, the, what's with all these crazy stories? If he didn't speak in parables, it would be a lot easier and more people could follow Surely more would get on board. And it's an interesting point. And I must say, as a teacher, I've made the same point. Didn't get really much of an answer because it was already there in Scripture. Because surely Jesus wants all of us to be saved. It's very clear in the New Testament. He doesn't want that anyone should perish. So he wants everybody in. There's there's no lack of invitations to the table. So why would he appear to make it difficult? It's because Jesus understood that hearing is a long way from understanding. Understanding. And he didn't want people who just heard and learned by road. He wanted people who got it. Because even Jesus, he knew he couldn't just talk people into the kingdom. He couldn't just teach them into a transformed life. And this is horrible news for a preacher. Because I can't talk you into anything as much as I would like it. It doesn't matter what I have found to be true. And it doesn't matter how well I, I can broadcast it. If it's not true to you, it's not true yet. And wrote learning of Scripture alone, as glorious as it is, as priceless as it is, and never to be compromised, it's inadequate if we don't seek out the author of that Scripture because it's a relational journey. It's not an informational journey. Look at what Jesus himself said to the Pharisees who knew it way better than you and I. You guys, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me and have that life. So you can know the Bible inside and out. I know a lot of people who do and they're dumb as a rock. They know the stuff. They don't know him. They've never met him. Secular Christian theologians, have you ever heard of them? I've met a few of them. Bumped into a few while I was over in the UK. They've made a career out of knowing scripture. Never made a confession of Christ in their life. Fascinating. I, don't, I don't, personally don't know how you can do that. But I guess when the Spirit's within you, you wouldn't understand that. But Jesus knew the vital principle. And here's a big lesson, I guess, for today. There's a vital principle. Nothing is yours unless you discover it. That's not a Bible verse. That's just a principle that seems to ring true. Nothing is truly yours, is it? You don't take it on unless you've discovered it. Think about it with kids. Do children value the gifts you give if they come at them like a fire hose? <clears throat> have this, have this, have this. I do it for my grandsons all the time. It's like they, they sort of don't not like it. But how many kids really appreciate if you just flood them with, with, with everything they want? We call it spoiling, don't we? And it's just you just keep at they don't. But if they, if they can build something, if they've earned something, if they've discovered something, doesn't matter how big it is, it's theirs. It can be this little thing, and they go that. <laughs> we can hear principles for decades, but never value them and never obey them. But if we've learned it through hard experience, that's a pearl of great price, isn't it? That's our no one needs to teach us that sucker. We've learned this thing, changing our life. and define ourselves by it. So these parables that Jesus used deliberately hide the truth because it requires you to search for it, because in the searching, it becomes yours. Because he's after seekers. He's not hiding truth from us, he's hiding truth for us. Massive difference. Because treasure discovered is treasure that we keep. It's a kingdom of seekers. That's why I would say, ask, seek, knock. Because when you do that, you will find it, you will receive it. Hebrews 11.6, anyone who comes to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly Seek him. I love that word, earnestly seek. It's one word in the Greek, exatio. Zatio just means I'd like something. I can drive, I can walk past a Ferrari dealership and go, love that car, love that, but I make no effort to get it. Exatio says, I have a passion for it and, and I will make a, a decisive walk towards getting it. Those who, those, anyone who comes to God must believe he exists and he rewards those who have a passion and a commitment to find him. That's the key. Why do we see so many miracles and transformations at our weekend retreats? Why do we see that year in, year out? Because people have paid a price to be there. They've had the, it's a treasure they've had to seek after. Why do we see so little revival and salvation in the West? Because we don't generally know what hunger feels like. It's as simple as that. What you hunger for, what you seek after and you find, you value. Pearl of great Christ, Jesus called it. So let's look at Jesus' explanation then of this parable of the sower because he's had the meanings have been hidden in there. And here's the great lessons for us today. He starts off in Matthew 13, he's explaining that to the disciples. So this is the guys who paid admission to being in the room. Okay, they're hungry. Tell us the stuff, Jesus, because we don't get what's going on. He goes, okay, here we go. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's sown in their heart. This is the seed along the path. So he's saying there's a hard path, it's like concrete. We're casting seed out there and the birds just come and get it. And the seed he's talking about is the truth of the kingdom. The the, the things of the kingdom that matter most. He said we throw that seed out and we're not discriminant in who we throw it out to. This is the point. He doesn't say, oh, the hard path there, no seed belongs there. No, he's not saying that. We don't get the right to choose that. The seed goes out everywhere. Your workplace, the bus you catch on the way to work, wherever it is, The seed has to go out. The truth of the kingdom goes out. We don't decide where truth should go. It goes everywhere and we don't say people's no for them. That's very important. So wherever we go, uh, we should be spreading the seed as well of the good news. He goes on, the seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, fascinating term, since they have no root, uh, you could also use the word structure within them. There's no framework within them. They last only a short time. When trouble or persecution, persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So there's, he's saying that because there's, there's shallow ground, there's, there's nowhere for roots to come down and, and dig deep because there's no roots in their life. And this is a, this is a fascinating concept. You may have seen this in, in practice in your own life where people you say, yeah, I believe I'm in. They'll come down for an altar call at the front, but you never see them again. What's happened there? There's no root within them. And what what is that root? It's the discipline and character, the the formation that we have within us, the structure that's within our life, the ability to have integrity and character and stickability and say, because I know this, therefore I'm doing that. It's it's depth that gives the soil some some substance. See, how often do you see wonderful soil or sand get eroded away because there's no foliage around it? The water comes and it just just washes it away. We need structure in our life. And this is why discipline and character are are so important. If we're too lazy in our thoughts, our thoughts are never going to turn to God. If we rely on everything besides God, then anything but God's going to do. We need to have structure in our life, the discipline of Christianity, where we're faithful, where we read our scriptures, we understand the scriptures, we spend time in them, we pray, and we have a routine in our life. It's a, form, it's a form for the filling. And without that structure, it can get washed away. So We can't complain that God doesn't exist if we haven't made a home for God within us. And that's what the structure of character and discipline in our life can do. He goes on. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word making it unfruitful this is where it really starts to we could go down the i'm calling you out sort of thing but i'm i want to come to you pastorally not in persecution this is where it gets really difficult because the inference here is the soil's pretty good the soil in our heart we're ready to go we're disciplined we're structured but where the Word of God and the fruitfulness that should naturally come, it's getting choked out. I'm being constrained here. There's something happening in my life. And in Luke 14, and and all the Gospels have this same narrative in them. In Luke 14, it says that the uh, seed was choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and therefore can't mature. So fruitfulness and maturity are interchanged here. So a a mature plant will bear fruit. So if I am mature in Christ, I will be fruitful. That's, That's the strong assumption. A follower will be a fisherman. These two things must go together. If they're not, we're not in congruence with who we're designed to be. A mature plant must bear fruit. But the the, the things that I'll talk about now constrain us. So I want to use the, the, the Luke definitions, worries, riches, and pleasures. They're doing us in. In this culture, in this day, I think this is one of our biggest challenges. So let's talk first about worries. Worry. Does anyone ever feel like worry constrains their life? We probably all spend times in that space. There's, the trouble with troubles is the troubles always come. Actually this, they never go away. Have you noticed that? And in fact, troubles just keep getting more troubling. They're, they just keep growing through life. I've got more troubles now than I've had in any time in my life. You'd think 60 year olds, about time life got easy, but it just seems to be getting more trouble. It doesn't mean I have to be a victim of it, but the troubles just keep stacking up. But I can have trouble, but worry is optional. If I have one regret about my ministry life, and I had plenty of promises that I believe were from God uh, at the beginning and even prior to going into ministry, and between here and there, you know, there's been lots of trials and lots of things where I think this has all gone wrong or I'm really discouraged or whatever the troubles would be, lots of troubles that are unique to the path that God has had me on. And I've, I've found myself occasionally dipping into worry Going, God, your plans—your plans—are being thwarted by this numbskull who's ruining everything, or this situation, or or this terrible thing called COVID, or or the fact that we need to pay money to actually exist in a place like this, or whatever my excuse would be at the time. It's like all the troubles and all the worries come in, and I can I can choose to worry, or I can choose to not. And I think there are times where, just like the rest of us, you you, you indulge yourself in the worry of it, because that, what we're saying there is that. I'm suffering unbelief in that sense that my problems are bigger than God's ability to have his will to be done. That's what I'm really saying. That's what worry is. Trouble is not the problem. It's our our response to it. And if I believe this problem is bigger than my ability to cope or for God's ability to provide, then worry becomes the governor of the direction of my life. It says that my problems are bigger than God or his desire or potency to do anything about it. But what I've discovered is I'm exactly where in the end, every everything God promised has happened. He made promises about this church. That, and some of them are still going and, and they'll go beyond today, obviously. But everything that's tried to get in the way and, and everything that I've seen is a big problem, God's just fixed it. He's just sorted it out, and we're on the path. I needn't have worried. If he says it, it's gonna happen. And I don't need to worry about all the roadblocks along the way because if I'm faithful, if I'm believing and I'm just humble and walking with God, if it's his plan, he'll make it be. So we can choose to worry or not. The trouble is not the problem. It doesn't matter how big it is. It really does not matter how big it is. The challenge is what I do with the challenge. And we'll always have things to justify our worries. They can consume us. They, they bring our focus towards a problem, not what on can be. And Jesus says that worrying that we do, that time, that emotion, that unbelief that it fosters is ensuring that we will never grow up. The trouble is actually losing its purpose because the trouble can can be the making of us. It should be the making of us. It should grow us in faith, not rob us of faith. Worry is an option. So if we're choked, we need to recognise what it is that's doing the choking. And have faith in God again that he will do what he can do and choose to believe that. That's worrying. Riches is the second one. As um, in one of them, the gospel says, the the deceitfulness of wealth. See, wealth in its its own right is not a problem. It's it's amoral. It's it's a non-issue. It's it's how we treat it. It's how we think about it. And I I recognise this is a tender topic uh, with everyone. It doesn't matter how... Well or not, you're doing financially. We're in a fairly uh, prosperous area. But my moral authority, uh, make no bones about it, does not extend to your bank account. I have no right to tell you what to do with your money, and and I won't. My moral authority is to offer you freedom and say, here's what freedom looks like, and to say the spiritual norm can look a certain way. Because the reality is you're only truly free when you're free to give, whether that's your time, your heart, your resources, your money. You're only truly free when you're free to give it away. And we all know those who have absolutely nothing and yet live incredibly fruitful and happy lives because they don't hang on too tight with their life. But what's Jesus' real point here? Why is he he raising something like wealth? Well, because our thinking around wealth, not only money, can deceive us and bind us up. And it's true over over the many years I've been in ministry and before, many people have said, you know, when I have enough, I can serve. When I have enough, I can give. Or or God's work will come after I give the best of my life to the next steps on my career ladder. There's nothing wrong with your career ladder. Go hard. But it needs to be in its right place because God, as God of the universe, cannot not be first. He is God. He's God of all. He is Lord. There is no argument about that. He He can't play second. He just can't. He doesn't play second fiddle and he won't argue with us about it. He's Lord or He's not Lord in our own heart. So we can't validly say, look, at God, I'm going to do this and all this for you when it's convenient, when I have enough. You'll never have enough if that's the argument. You just won't. I love this story I heard from so many men over the years. I I worked this hard for my family. Now, it may have happened, but I've never heard it. I've never heard her say, thanks, Dad or Mum, for working so hard and making so much money. Someone may have said it. I don't know, in this room, you might have heard it. I've never heard it yet. Probably because it's not hugely common. They don't want your money. They want you. Isn't that obvious? Every kid just wants their mum and dad. Money's great, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have a so-what test. Jesus' real point here is don't let the deceitfulness tied to your resources constrain your life so it it becomes the idol that you consult before we do what God requires of us. Because right now that's more important than it has been for a 100 years at least. Now it really matters. Scripture speaks into this really seriously and really pointedly. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil. Mm. Matthew 6.24, you can serve two masters. You can't, sorry, you can't serve two masters. Cut that one out. You'll hate one and you'll love the other because God and money just can't compete. They just, they're, they're like oil and water. They can't coexist. A love of money and a love of God, you can't do it. You just can't do it. And a desire to have what you don't have and hold on too tight to what you do have uh, makes it into an idol, makes it into a false God. I just feel prompted to pray into that right now. Can we pray into that? Because I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir this is, this is a very generous congregation, but this is just something we need to put to rest. So can I just pray for us now about that? Lord, I just want to come to you and just pray. And I just want to lift off us of any burden of guilt, any burden of obligation, because obligation never solves anything. Coercion never solves anything. Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith. Because, Lord, many here are under significant and very real pressure because of inflation, mortgages, global economics and downturns. Expectations of employers, expectations of the whole world. They, they burden us, Lord, heavily on our shoulders, so we feel like we have no choices. And so, Lord, I want to cancel that as falsehood. You are the provider, not our boss. You are the provider, not the federal government. You are our provider. Lord, you promised to give us everything that we need. And Lord, I just pray that you would release faith in this church right now and peace the believer, lift the burden of obligation, the burden of fear and worry off our shoulders in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, to continue, the last one is pleasures. And I think if anything, even more than resources, pleasures I think is the the little God, little G God of the hour, our idol of comfort. Will following God put me out? Well, I need to get out of bed this morning. You know, do I really have to do that? Comfort, that's what's doing that. Because I'm, I'm comfortable, I just don't want to do that. I can't be bothered. And this is a reborn enemy of the faith. It's just come out of nowhere. It was, it was creeping up on us, I think, pre-COVID, but COVID's just put fuel on that fire. And it's just, I was in a meeting this week with 20 other pastors from around Australia and they're pulling their hair out because watch little, there is. <laughs> we all look much the same, bald, you know, Frowning? No. Actually, great, great bunch of people, men and women. Gee, there's some good leaders in Australia, in the churches. It's in good hands, let me tell you. But the, but the dynamic that, that we're dealing with is that all the dials that we used to work to, this is how church works. You have for every hundred people, there's X amount of hours of volunteerism and there's, there's this amount of money, give or take this or that. And here's how you can factor in your staffing structures and your mortgages and stuff. It's all changed. No one's turning up. Or if they are, they're on a roster. That's, the night before, they'll, sorry, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling I can't be bothered turning up tomorrow. And the parole staff member goes, oh, it's right, I'll do your job and your job and your job, you know. Yeah, so you should, you're paid for it anyway, you know. So, and it's like, this is a reality now. People are going, is, what's the word? Is it flaky? Can I say that? Not, not you, their churches, ours is awesome. <laughs> I said, oh, you guys, we don't know what it's like in Queensland. Our guys are hot to trot, we're moving, it's just fantastic. They all want to move to Queensland and plant churches out of here. But um, no, it's just post-COVID, the general populace out there has become, I don't know, the flame went out and and it's easier to, it's just like, what's going on? Ed Steps, the great professor of all this, said in COVID, uh, the world caught on fire, you know, and a third of the church left the building and hasn't come back. So it's changed things because suddenly it's like, I just want to fuel this thing called comfort, fuel these pledges that are in my life, and it, and it makes it really challenging to sort of do church in a powerful, powerful way. And our culture has turned indulgence into entitlement, hasn't it? It's like what was once a luxury now becomes, I expect that. You know, working beyond 37 hours a week is seen as workaholism now. I need counselling apparently. Going the extra mile even for something of incredible worth is seen as unsustainable now. You can't keep doing that. But I want to do that. It brings me to life. I like working for the gospel. I love it. I'm empty nested. What else am I going to do? You know, Leave me alone. But pleasure also relates to our other stuff, like all those addictions that we're stuck on. Uh, sexual orientations become a thing, obviously. Pornography's been there for a while. Substances, gambling, all those things that we just... Pain always seeks pleasure. And so pleasure becomes the little G God. And most of us are dealing at some level with this residual pain in our life. We don't know, we've lost the art of taking it to God and leaning on him, so we lean on every other thing just for that small moment of that little dopamine hit or whatever. Rick Warren famously said, I love Rick Warren. He made it. You know, Rick Warren got to retire intact. Thank God one pastor managed to do it, hey? But I love his saying, it was padding out, Our comfort seat is not the highest of God's priorities. Your comfort, my comfort, isn't very high on his list of let's get that done. You know, we'll push through. We'll work hard for exercise. Some of us more than others. We'll push our careers. We'll have our real estate portfolio. We'll have all the stocks and shares. We'll work really hard on that. And why do we do that? Because we've done the equation. We know it's worth it. If I do this, it's going to reap me that. But let me tell you, local church is worth it. Local church is worth more than that. It's not just me. That's probably why I'm into it, but it's just nothing else besides my family means any more to me on this planet than the local church. It's the greatest, most valuable, grandest enterprise the world has ever seen and ever will. The local church, the ability for it to have Lost gets found and found people grow. Nobody else can do that. One, on one, one single Christianity isn't going to do that, doing it out on your own. It's the local church and it's worth it. What God is doing here, it's worth paying a price for. It's not only worth getting out of bed for, it's worth working above, above 37 hours a week. It's worth it. Pleasure is a false idol. And Jesus says these things constrain our lives. It means if our lives are constrained, if even one of your lives is constrained, we all pay the price for it and so of the people out there who aren't seeing the fruit of this in our lives. It's a, this is the highest stakes game in town, what happens right here. I've known lots of impressive people in my life, continue to. Some of them run, run incredibly sized companies and they'll say, look, the decisions I make affect thousands of people, their families. Absolutely, that's high stakes. You talk to a colonel or an admiral or a general in an army The decisions I make cost tens of thousands of people their lives. That's high stakes. But let me tell you something. They're going to die anyway. They're going to die one day anyway. What we do here talks into eternity. How can anything compare to the value of the kingdom of God? You know, the church has has screwed it up more times than we can remember. It's embarrassing. It doesn't mean it's a wrong idea. Nothing is more more valuable than seeing the kingdom and seeing your part to play in it. All right, I'm getting on my hobby horse, sorry. Jesus continues, verse 23, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. What crop? What's the crop in your life? It's a multiplication of who God's calling you to become. It's more seed, more of that seed. The seed is sown in you, going out, gospel shared, people loved to life, kids grown up, transformed lives, all the things we take for granted. More and more of that. I tell you, I've been, I'm, I'm, the older I get, the more wound up I'm getting about this sort of stuff. You know, Jesus said, look up, guys. He said, look up, as he he had one encounter with the Sumerian woman at the world. Well. He said, look up, the fields are white for harvest. Look up, stop looking down at our feet and our worries and our pleasures and our riches. Look out there, it's white for the harvest. 62% of Australians are warm to this gospel. That means they will listen. That means potentially they'll come and join themselves with the body of Christ in faith. 80% of people in Australia will come to church if they're invited by someone. that will be a full church, hey? 2% are inviting them. We're choked. We're choked. Every church except this one is choked. Now my question's out of this because I'm looking up. I'm seeing a harvest field. There are way more people looking for a healthier expression of the gospel and the kingdom than there are churches to be found. It's not a lack of people out there. It's not a lack of hunger out there for spirituality. This generation emerging through are hungry, more hungry than ever for truth, for spirituality, and we hold the keys of the kingdom. You and I, we've got them. The field is white for the harvest. So the questions are, and next week we're going to have a family forum where we talk about real steps that we can take where we can all get involved in our way, the way God's making us. We can do it. So the question would be, if we could give you those simple ways, if you, could, if you could pay a little bit of a price, if comfort wasn't the consideration, would you help us? Would you be part of that? Because that's actually why we started. It's why we came here. I didn't come here to say, let's play church again. Let's do all that again. Would you sacrifice a little to see that harvest? Because the harvest is there. It's already there. We can all play a part, large or small, all of us, and we need to. It, it may be uncomfortable a little bit, it may not be, it may be fantastic, who knows, but would we be, pre- be prepared just to say yes to whatever God would say? So uh, next week at the Family Forum, I'm hoping everyone who calls this church at home would come after church next Sunday morning. I'll, we'll talk through, what we want to do is talk through a proposal that we, um, or a, a way, a solution set that the, the, the leaders and their teams, we've been talking through now for nearly two months. Because we're, we're full here. There's no room for visitors here. What if, it, what if God wanted 50,000 people to be saved in our area? Where are we going to put them? We can't. So we need, to, we need to create a space for God to work to do that. And that means we're probably going to need to change a few things. But if, you, if the church decides we don't want to change a few things, then we're not going to change a few things. But I want us to be praying. And we want to present a, a, a proposal and how we can do that next week and, and a journey that will Probably be a journey where you stay on for the longest time, but we hope to start in second term. And then we'll just get a bit of a show of hands. What do you think? And if you say yes, then it's all guns blazing and off we go. If we say no, then, that's, then we're not going to do it. Simple as that. Not worried. But I, man, I'm hungry, hey? I'm, the field, I keep looking up. We need, we need churches planted in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but healthy. Resourced with people who are fun, excited for the gospel in Moggle, in Sherwood, Ashgrove, Tuong, Kirana Downs, all those spots need a thriving church that's got what we take for granted here every week. We need leaders, we need volunteers. I'm not saying that's what we're going to do from fourth quarter, but that's God willing the trajectory I've always spoken about. We'll see. Let's pray. Lord, it's impossible to hear the size of your vision and not be completely humbled by it. Lord, I don't ask of these people today anything other than just to look to you, to break off ourselves any shackles that are binding us and instead replace that with faith, optimism and hope. of what we can see Lord, for every piece of fruit that is someone sitting in a seat in this church today, there's 30, 60, 100 fold out there you've prepared for them to engage with. Lord, will you build your church? You told us to disciple one person at a time. We can do that. We leave you to build your church. Do it your way. Lord, we wanna come at this with faith, and optimism. Lord, we bless you. We're part of your kingdom. We're incredibly privileged to be called your people. Help us to become followers who fish in the name of Jesus.